1: Today I'm hosting Bodipaksa. He's the author of *Living as a River: Finding Fearlessness in the Face of Change*. Bodipaksa, welcome to the New Masters Cafe. Hello, Michael. Nice to have you here. So, Bodipaksa is someone who's traveled the world, familiar with other cultures. Um, I'm wondering, from your perspective in this moment in time, how you see the ever-changing, ever-morphing worldscape. Well. We're obviously becoming much more
2: technological. The pace of things is accelerating, at least in in the West. In fact, uh, everywhere to some extent or another. I I think at the moment we are a bit like rubes that have just come in from uh, some hick state somewhere and are in Times Square, and we're just gawking at all the lights and the traffic and the people and everything. And we are fascinated by our technology uh, so you see, like as I did this morning, a, a mother walking down the street with her child and she's you know, texting as she goes and not interacting with her child at all. Um, I think we are right now messing ourselves up with our technology. But I think it's going to be a temporary phase. I think we're going to learn to be less distracted. I think we're going to have to learn to be less distracted and be more focused on more human values and, and more... intimate and human communication rather than on a little technologically mediated communication.
1: There was a great story that you uh, related in the book, and it was about uh, 1911, and it was a 32-year-old sportsman and daredevil called Galbraith Perry Rogers uh, with a scant 60 hours of airtime in his logbook and said I have to cross the United States from coast to coast in his specially modified Wright airplane, the first in private ownership. Talk about that story.
2: Yeah, I loved this story when I first heard about it. So this is 1911, and this guy is going to be flying from New York City to California. And you've got to imagine his airplane as being an incredibly fragile thing. It's more like a a big box kite with a a small motor in it, rather than uh, anything we'd think of as an airplane. It didn't have a proper cockpit. Um, It didn't have any navigational devices in it whatsoever. He was able to navigate across country by following a train. Uh, which was a good thing to do because the train had a white uh, boxcar on it which contained spare parts enough spare parts to build the entire aircraft over and over again Uh, and he needed that because of course this being 1911 there were no airfields there were no airplanes so he had to try to find uh, relatively flat fields to land in. It kept crashing the plane over and over again. It was part of a competition, and he was trying to get across the United States in uh, 30 days.
1: William Randolph Hearst had
2: sponsored Yeah, William Randolph Hearst had put up, uh, I think it was $50,000, which must have been a huge amount of money in those days. Yes. Mean, it must have been the equivalent of close to a million dollars or something. Yes. So uh, uh, Calbraith sets off, and... Um, Crashes seventy times. takes way way longer than the thirty days uh, allowed. Uh, the last twenty miles uh, takes him a month, uh, and he breaks his ankle uh, and all kinds of things.
1: I was imagining this guy's like, it's such a fragile piece. He's he's flying. He's got he's wrapping himself up in in all these clothes and. Yeah, in the, in the he set motor, off in the yeah.
2: fall as well. I yeah. mean, a crazy time to do
1: it. Yes. And he sets motor, off in September. The would have powered an ordinary lawnmower. Yeah, I mean, yeah more like, or
2: less, yeah. Probably one of the ones that you could sit on, I think, rather yes. than the that,
1: that you would push. But yeah,
2: there's not really much power to it. And, uh, of course, they had to keep rebuilding the aircraft uh, as, it, as it went, because every time he landed, something would break, something would you know, jiggle loose or it would uh, you know, just snap off uh, or get worn out. And so by the time he arrived in California there were only two components of the aircraft left that had actually left from Sheepshead Bay just outside uh, New York City. There was a wing strut and a rudder. And so you kind of wonder, what was it that crossed the United States? Because what arrived uh, on the West Coast wasn't the same thing that left on the East Coast. And yet, obviously, they're connected to each other. There, there was a process which made its way across the United States. When I first heard this story uh, many, many years ago, I was really struck by it as a, an illustration of the buddhist teaching of uh, anatta or of uh, non-self um this kind of the buddhist teaching of uh, anatta helps, helps us to look at ourselves and realize that they're not as static and as separate as they think we are our bodies are the same you know you're you you do not die with the same body that you were born with in fact, scientists have, have looked at uh, the turnover of cells and um, the, the atoms in our body. And uh, each of us, although you might be you know, 50 or 60 or 70 years old, our bodies are only about 7 or 8 years old, uh, which is kind of nice, really, because yes. I don't really feel any age. you know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> My consciousness doesn't feel like it's any age sure. uh, at all. Yes. If you take it a little bit further and think, well, where was this aircraft? It was called the VinFizz.
1: Um, he had actually gotten someone to sponsor it, it was yeah. He, he
2: thought it was a possibility that he might not um, make the the deadline for winning the competition. So he got sponsorship from a Chicago uh, entrepreneur who had a brand of soda called Vin Fizz. It was a grape flavored. Put up uh, fifty thousand dollars. Uh, quite a lot of money, yeah. So that uh, you know paid for the flight, which must have been tremendously expensive, considering he had a, an entire train going with him and basically the equivalent of several aircraft in spare parts. And uh, well, you just think about the Vin Fizz, and well, where was it a year or two before it flew across the United States? You know, it was trees before it was trees. It was soil. It was air. It was clouds and oceans. Not, not even you know close by, but probably you know water from all over the planet. You know, so the um, the Vin Fizz kind of. Uh, it it didn't emerge from nowhere but it kind of condensed almost like you you can see a cloud condensing above above a mountain when there's an updraft it kind of condensed out of the elements that form uh, our planet and then a few years after this flight uh, sadly the aircraft was uh, broken up and uh, burned and recycled in a way that's kind of a, a beautiful thing but it would have been nice to have actually seen it in a Yes. Uh, museum somewhere. There are uh, replicas of it, but you can't see the actual thing. So, where is the Vin Fizz now? You know, it is back to being trees and back to being minerals in the earth. You know, the ash has gone back to the earth and the uh, carbon dioxide from its burning has been absorbed by trees and probably by us. You know, we are the Vin Fizz. So, its Vin Fizzness was just this uh, temporary phase uh, in a longer process. And, and, even when we saw it as being the Vin Fizz, it was never the same Vin Fizz uh, from one landing to the next. It was a continually changing evolving uh, process. And again, you know, that's what we're like as well. Our bodies, our minds are always changing uh, all the time. And yet we have this sense a lot of the time that we are separate and static. Because we we very often just don't notice the change that, that takes place.
1: And this guy Galbraith, I mean he His determination and intention, I mean, it took him, like, months to get across the country. And, of course, by that time, the contest was over.
2: Yeah, I think he had 30 days to do it, and it took about 70 days
1: altogether. As
2: I said, the last 20 miles took a month.
1: (laughs) And then he, he wanted to get to San Diego. He wanted to finish the flight, and... It took him how long to get that, that was that was the last twenty miles. Yeah, yes. he
2: he decided he definitely wanted to see the Pacific Ocean. He'd gone that far, you know. He was going to fly all the way to the Pacific Ocean, and at the finishing point, he was only twenty miles away. And uh, you know, he could have walked it in in a, in a day if he'd been a, a fit man. But it actually ended up taking him a month to cover those last twenty miles. Yeah. Extraordinary uh, journey. The guy was, uh, you know, uh, quite hero or crazy, depending on how you want to look at it.
1: <laughs> Lots of intention there for sure.
2: Yeah, definitely, yeah, a lot of yeah. spirit.
1: So we live in a very fast-paced culture, and I'm wondering, you know, just from your perspective, and then people looking outside at the world, as we talked about earlier, they say, you know, well, the world's really in a bad shape and going to hell in a handbasket kind of thing. And what do you have to say to people who say, you know, what can I do? I'm just one person. What can I possibly do to change things?
2: Well, I guess everybody's only one person. Uh, We have ideas about ourselves, of course, limiting ideas. I mean, the the idea I am only one person is a a limiting idea. I mean, inherent in that is the idea that we are only one person and therefore powerless. But then all the people, all of us who are making a mess of the world, uh, I'm not going to pin the blame on any particular people. I mean, we're all doing it to, to one extent or another, are all... Just one person. Some of the people who are making the biggest messes of the world—I mean, some of the people who are running, uh, you know, corporations or producing, uh, you know, dangerous chemicals or you know, are messing up our environment—they're run by one person. I mean, one person can actually have a huge effect. On the positive side, you know, you've got uh, heroic individuals. Um, you know, people like, uh, you know, the Buddha, etc., the Christ, you know, Gandhi, St. Teresa, who, people who just make a huge difference in the world. They don't limit themselves by thinking, well, I'm just one person. They just think, well, what can I do? And as Gandhi said, you know, it doesn't care whether it's a small thing that you can do. It's important that you do it.
1: Recognizing that uh, none of us can predict the future. We don't know what's going to happen in the next moment. Um, If we were to, here we are in the last quarter of 2010, if we were to fast forward to the year 2020 and there were no obstacles, nothing in the way, and you had all your druthers, what would you want to see the world be like in 2020?
2: I'd like to see the world more uh, more just and more fair. I think there's uh, a lot of people uh, in. Uh, countries in the Third World, for example, who have enormous potential. Um, I think very often in the privileged West, we, we look at other countries and we think that the, the people there, there must be something kind of wrong with them because uh, their countries are, are in a mess. I mean, my children, for example, are adopted from Ethiopia. And Ethiopia is, I believe, the, one of the poorest countries in the world. Is perhaps the second poorest country in the world. I can't remember the exact place in the league table. But my children who were were adopted at the ages of four months and ten months? are the most intelligent, you know inquisitive, uh, emotionally positive uh, people. I mean, I just learn so much from them, and I'm kind of challenged to be a better person by them all the time. And you think, well, there's an entire country of one hundred thousand of these children who all they're they're needing is the encouragement and the the opportunity to excel. And I believe that a poor country like Ethiopia, just given some, uh, some encouragement and some constructive help, not being spoon-fed, but just being kind of, you know, helped along, could be an absolute amazing powerhouse of uh, ingenuity. You see people in uh, the slums of Ethiopia, and uh, a lot of Ethiopia is, is slums, just having enormous creativity. You know, kids uh, making toys out of scrap that they found at the, at the side of the road. and uh, When kids ask you for something... They very often don't ask you for money. They'll ask you for pens because they want to educate themselves. They want to go to school and, and educate themselves. So I guess this is a bit of an obsession of mine, I guess I'm going on about it at length. But I would like to see uh, the rich taking more of an interest in the poor because it's going to benefit the rich in, in the long term as well. You know, Henry Ford said that he wanted every one of his employees to be able to afford to buy a Model T Ford. Uh, nowadays that is not the perspective that most uh, business people take. They want to maximize the amount of profit that they make and they want to minimize the amount that they pay out to their workers and we have the same kind of attitude I think to the third world we want their resources but we don't want to um, to pay and you know Henry Ford found that if you've got a lot of people who can buy Model T Ford's things go really well. I think if we've got a a, a booming Culture in, uh, say, the third world and and, and in other countries, that's going to, in the long run, make the world uh, a better place for everybody, ourselves included.
1: You also have an interest in working with prisoners in prison. I do.
2: Yes, it's something I had to drop over the last uh, few months because my uh, my wife's working schedule uh, changed and it doesn't allow me to to go up there as much, but. Uh, For six years, I've been going up to the men's prison in Concord, New Hampshire, and working with uh, uh, inmates there, teaching uh, Buddhism and meditation. And uh, that's been one of the most rewarding things that I have ever done in my life. Why? Well, you see people living in very difficult circumstances. I mean, a prison is a tough place to live. I mean, for most of us, high school was kind of tough, but imagine being locked in high school and just not allowed to leave for years and the kind of pathologies of the interactions between people just kind of, you know, building up and becoming very intense. But I meet people over and over again who are living in these very difficult circumstances and who are really working on themselves. They're working on becoming more self-aware. They're working on mindfulness. They're working on uh, being more caring towards other people. And, I have I, seen an enormous amount of change in some of the people there. They take their spiritual practice more seriously than most people who are in the outside world. And when when I've persuaded uh, other people to go in and visit, they've always had that response of just being blown away and saying, "Wow, <laughs> you know, I wish I was living my life with this with this kind of intensity."
1: If there were one thing you could leave our listeners with, what would it be, Bodhipaksa?
2: Well, one of the things I'm thinking about uh, prison now and some of the things that I've learned from, uh, from prison is don't relate to people as they are, but relate to people as they could be. There's a little mantra that I kind of carry around in my, in my head sometimes, which is uh, all beings are from the very beginning Buddhas, which means that everybody has the potential to be extraordinary Everybody has the potential to be uh, mindful and wise and kind. And in a way, they're all on the path to attaining that, even though they don't realise it, because the path is very long and winding and we make lots of mistakes on the way. So uh, it, it just it liberates us and it liberates other people when we relate to them, not in terms of what they are and their limitations and what we think they can't do and what we think is wrong with them, but if we relate to them in terms of what they could become when you relate to people that way, when you relate to yourself that way, uh, we tend to grow into those roles and they tend to grow into those roles.
1: Brody Paxa, thank you so much for being with us on the New Dimensions Cafe.
2: You're so welcome. I love being here. Thank you.
1: Uh, It's been great being with you. I've been speaking with Brody Paxa. He's the author of Living as a River, Finding Fearlessness in the Face of Change, published by Sounds True Books. And I'd like to thank you for joining us at the New Dimensions Cafe. Please come back again. And don't forget, when you go out there in the world, do something good.
0: You've been listening to the New Dimensions Café. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a 1,000 hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org.